1979, the art historian Rosalind Krauss was prompted by the realization that the term sculpture had come to describe a wide array of forms and practices. She reflected on the preceding 10 years of development in the field. Nothing, she observed, could possibly give to such a motley of effort the right to lay claim to whatever one might mean by the category of sculpture. Unless, that is, the category could be made to become almost infinitely malleable. A motley of effort, an infinitely malleable term, transported to the present, she could just as well be describing the last decade of digital humanities. Welcome to the first episode of Humanities Plus. I am your host, Rachel Scray. I am an undergraduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I am a double major in history and digital and public humanities with an emphasis of museums and galleries. That's a lot. That is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think my parents think that I'm ever going to graduate. Just a side note, I, with all of those, I think they're like, I don't know if the end is near at all. As you may be able to tell from my long list of studies, I enjoy researching and learning about history and the humanities, as well as submerging myself in the world of arts and culture. Last semester, with the help and motivation from Kate Farley, the producer of Phoenix Studios, and Dr. Caroline Boswell, Associate Professor of Humanities and European History, we played with the idea of creating a podcast for the Digital Public Humanities program here at the university. This semester, it has further developed and has become a reality, and I'm very excited about that. And here we are. And here we are. Yeah. So the goal of Humanities Plus is to provide listeners meaningful discussions with enthusiasts, scholars, and experts on the intricate fields of digital and public humanities in order to expand our listeners' thinking and perspective on the subject. The topic of the first episode is, what is digital and public humanities, and why is it so difficult to explain? Here to discuss this with us is the Dean of College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences, Dr. Chuck Raybeck. Yeah. Thank you Hi. for being here. No, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So what do you want to talk about? All the things? I don't know if we can talk about all the things. It's very, very intricate. So you want to start at the beginning? Yes. Like where the, the book of Genesis? Yes, let's start at the beginning. Okay, um, so what do you want to know? All right, so my understanding mm -hmm. is that you, Dr. Boswell, and Dr. Heidi Sherman uh, were the big initiators in bringing yeah. the digital and public humanities? I would say so. And our producer, Kate Farley, who is in the room right now, she was in on the ground floor for this too. So you want an origin story? Is that what Yeah, I kind of want to know what type of involvement you had. Sure. So in the last, I'd say, 10 years, gosh, it's probably more now, um, Kate, right, over that. Let's extend that, maybe 15 years, right? So there was this I mean, public humanities has been a field for a long time. Um, digital humanities is sort of a new-ish field that emerged out of what used to be called um, humanities computing, which was really people who cared about the things that we care about, right, that you talked about in the, in the opening, um, and also saw connections in those interests and what they were doing in the computing field and programming. And that's not really hard to see when you think about programming as a language and data and all of that that you know there's a lot of overlap there 
And like good interdisciplinary folks that they were, they started to think about this and do projects. Um, the first, I think, digital humanities project ever is a digital edition that was made by a philosopher of, what is it, Kate? Say it out loud. Was it Thomas Aquinas? I, I can't remember. Um, and yeah, so that, I mean, that was sort of the emergence of it. And then uh, like a lot of things, I'd say that it gained traction um, as a movement predominantly in English and history departments. And you could kind of see this with projects that do mapping and historical presentation, um, yeah, like digital editions and texts, hypertext and all that. We could get into e-literature and that kind of stuff. And so way back when I thought, you know, our students should probably get to know how to do this stuff. Um, I wouldn't be able to pitch a course to do it because it was only me at the time that was really willing to take it on. So we did independent study and it was me and Kate and I don't know, maybe 10 other students had started pretty big. And we so we did a year long independent study in what I would call di just digital humanities. The public part wasn't really there yet. Um, although I think public is embedded in the term digital humanities, that you're making projects that are hopefully publicly accessible and informative and consumable. Um, and then that was, I think the interest in that was enough for the students to go to the unit chair at the time, David Corey. Thank you, David Corey. Um, and the dean at the time, Scott Furlong. Thank you, Scott Furlong. And say, hey, we would like some coursework in this. And then we started small. So we just did some, what I would consider digital humanities infused courses, if I could be fancy about that. Um, and then finally in... That's really where Dr. Boswell and Sherman, doctors Boswell and Sherman come in, is that um, they also had interest in, in this kind of stuff. And Caroline Boswell and I team taught our first ever Intro to Digital and Public Humanities course. And I think when you look at the disciplines themselves and some of the things that the technology allows us to do, like if you're a historian, and so, I mean, I'm sure a great number of historians are interested in mapping and how data applies to that. Um, so GIS, uh, Geographical Information Systems, is a really great modern tool for that. Um, and like there's software for, you had said you're interested in museums and exhibits, and uh, there's digital exhibit software, which um, is Omeka, right? It's something that I'm familiar with. And, and I, could, I could go on and on. But I think it's just really at a time where at the speed that technology is advancing, that there really were some things there and tools that made some investigation possible that we weren't able to do before, like data mining, sort of big data access, corpus analysis, not corpses, but cor corpus <laughs> analysis, although we read a lot of novels where we do corpse analysis as well. Um, and I'd say the public part comes in because I think they're... Um, people like really shiny things and we tend to attach the shininess to things that are digital and technological. Um, but I, I consider the digital and the public part of this sort of a Venn diagram that overlaps a lot, you know, a lot of shared points where you could go to an exhibit that had digital and physical 
parts to it in some ways. Like I don't think the missions of the of the two are different in any way, and they often work in combination. Um, but I wouldn't want anybody to think that if the goal of digital humanities really was to turn outward in some cases and construct public projects that, well, we have a whole other field that already does this and it doesn't have to be digital, so why should those be separate? Is that too long and involved? No, that, that was good. You that sure? Was All right. All right. Let me take a sip of coffee. Okay. Now that I got to warm up here. All right. So there are many <laughs> digital humanities programs as well as public humanities programs. Yep. Uh, they vary from graduate, undergraduate, PhD level. From what I've seen specifically in the digital humanities, it's more geared towards graduate and mm-hmm. uh, PhD level courses. So what... Yeah. Um, for us at UWDB, we have an undergraduate digital mm-hmm. and public humanities. How is that, I guess, different or unique in the sense of compared to these other programs? Wow, that's a really big question. <laughs> How dare you? Um, well, I think, you know, there, there are practical reasons for this based on the institution that you're in and the resources that you have available at any given time. So we don't have any graduate programs right now in the humanities. And so there is kind of a default answer to that. At the same time, even if we did have some, would we have the resources to be able to pull that off? Um, And, you know, there is, I think there's a real, but this is the same with any discipline in higher education, that there are institutions with a ton of resources that are able to just launch and do things on their own. And, you know, they're, they're known for that. And, um, there is a prestige element to this, but if you're a regional comprehensive university like we are, I think that's that's an official designation that we have. Um, and I just went to a conference, it was sort of a conference that was called um, Networking the Regional Comprehensives with Rupika Risam, who is great. She's an awesome scholar and teacher at Salem State University. Um, is we have to work together more and combine and try to share resources and but no matter what no matter what kind of program it is um you're always going to be dependent on the people that are there and what their specialties are so even if we weren't talking about digital and public humanities i think you could walk into any english department or history department and there would be a different feel or focus to it based on the personnel that was there so you know even our English program over the last 10 years here has really shifted in popularity to the creative writing side of things. And I think a lot of that has to do with a change in personnel in some ways. You know, but what makes our program unique? I think it's really the people that are in it and the interests that they have, and also our students, that there's just a rare combination there. So to speak of our history department, our history department is already kind of an applied uh, focused, in, you know, group of people. They're really into making and hands-on, I know it sounds cliche, hands-on learning, but maybe experiential learning, if that's what I'm going for. And the public humanities really are, you know, that's what that is for, is to allow you to create scholarship and create work that acts as that interface with the public so that you have hands-on experience. You're not just limited to, which I think are valuable, the reading and the writing and the lectures, all of that is great. Um, it's just a different balancing of the experience in some ways. Um, and on the English side of it, I, again, it's it's really a personnel sort of issue that it, I, I like techie things and I like trying new things and experimenting. Um, and so one of the great things about what we've done here is that 
the program did not come out of a mandate or, hey, other schools are doing this and, you know, we're trying to improve the bottom line or something like that. It came out of really a collection of people with a desire to experiment and try something new and thinking, at and rightly so, that our students share that same appetite for experimentation and curiosity. And I think everything we do is built around that. So if you're in some of the classes, you know, a lot of the projects and the content are very self-directed. You know, they're based on interest and not only what are you interested in, but how can you deliver your interests in a meaningful and useful way to people out in the world who could benefit from what you have to say? Yes. Okay. Was that helpful? Yeah. Oh, okay. That was great. I'm doing the best I can. (laughs) So I guess I want to bring in the discussion of readings on the the debates. I did. Yeah, uh, wow. In in, uh, preparing for this, the different debates surrounding digital humanities. Hotly contested. Yes. Yes. Huge thing that people are over-invested in. Yeah, and that's that's what I wanted to bring up. Yep. It seems like we're really focused on trying to pigeonhole ourselves, I mm-hmm. guess, or or fit in a neat little box as yep. to what the definition is. Mm-hmm. And I think that takes away from what digital and public humanities is actually all about. I agree. And we should focus more on like our values as humanists, uh, what we want to do with the different technological tools that are out there. Like you said, what are our interests and mm-hmm. how are our interests going to benefit the public in some yeah. way mm-hmm. so what you're describing right now there's a term for that um <clears throat> because you're speaking from the student side of it that's what i would call big tent digital humanities yes. that you're inviting um, as many people in as possible no matter where they fall on the spectrum of technical expertise and i mean i can say for myself personally um and, and as an institution, eventually you're going to run up against sort of the hard wall of computing, what I would call small tent, like hardwired digital humanities, where you're really talking about computing, the original humanities computing part of it. Um, but to me, you know, technology has evolved outside of computing, or at least what I would call computing. And I think the big tent approach to it is more student aware than the small tent that whenever you're talking about academics, and I say this as a run-of-the-mill English professor, that part of the reason there are so many turf squabbles is that, you know, one of the, and I understand this, is that one of the reasons for that is people have to find their niche. You know, like you, the job market being what it is and trying to publish your own research, it's often like finding the narrowest space that your idea can fit into that is somehow one micron different than this other idea that came out before it. And I don't say that to be critical of that. I think it's just a reality that carries over, unfortunately, to a a lot of the turfiness of it. I do think there are valid criticisms of digital humanities based on overall criticisms of technology in education and bringing in um, tech in a way that colonizes institutions rather than enhances them or informs them in some way. And even if we weren't talking about digital humanities, we could talk about D2L or Canvas or how much discussion went into why we really need that and what the pedagogical benefits are and how much training people actually got to deliver their ideas through that medium um, and 
trust me, the threshold on that's always going to be low. So what you're describing is really a big tent philosophy. And I, I, but I also find the debates healthy, like any discipline should have internal debate about what you're doing and is it valuable. Um, and so even people who are really the most extreme anti-digital humanities folks, um, there's a person named David Columbia who I would say is known for this in some ways um, that I really respect in, in some ways too because they ask really important questions about what you're doing and how it what is it enabling in the long run that we might not see now. And we see that, for example, with algorithms, right? Like we could ask the same questions about what we're bringing into our classroom and engaging with our students that we're asking about Facebook and privacy. Like they're really not that separate from each other. So the debate is out there for sure. And that connects to also fighting over resources that if you're the shiny new thing and um, institutions are devoting money to you whereas and moving it away from, say, a traditional English program or a traditional history program, that's going to cause, <laughs> that's going to hurt a lot of feelings, you know, and, and rightly so. So I don't know if I answered anything that you just asked, but there. I think you did. Okay, great. Yeah. We, we talked a little bit about the different layers involved in the program. We did layers. All right. I, yeah, I like layers, layers, you know, okay, traditional yeah. humanities, <clears throat> yeah, digital yeah. humanities, public yeah, humanities. You're right. Agreed. They're all these separate different fields. And then here at UWGB, we're putting them all together. Yeah, I love the Venn diagram metaphor. So we're totally venting it right now. Yeah. I mean, and you talked about how, like, even in digital humanities, there is this uh, this continual discussion. Mm-hmm. And as technology continues to expand and, and develop further, digital humanities then has to also keep up with that, mm-hmm. would they not? Yeah. So I have a, a quote here that I would like to read to you. All right, let's have it. Okay. It's from Digital Humanities, The Expanded Field by Lauren Klein and Matthew mm-hmm. Gold. Mm-hmm. Along, I know Matthew Gold. I, I yeah. heard that you did. So the quote starts, along with the digital archives, quantitative analysis, and tool building projects that once characterized the field, digital humanities now encompasses a wide range of methods and practices. Visualizations on large image sets, 3D modeling of historical artifacts, born digital dissertations, mm-hmm. hashtag activism, alternate reality games, mobile making spaces, and more. It at times can be difficult to determine any specificity what precisely digital humanities work entails. Mm-hmm. How, I guess this might be a big question, but how do you think digital humanists should prepare, in a sense, for the expansion of different tools that mm. we can use to communicate humanities? It's a, or explore. Wow. Okay. <clears throat> so I, I guess I think of it this way is that the generation of academics, and I, I think there are more than academics involved. So I don't me- just mean professors, like um, people who are staff members, librarians, have all had vital input into this. I, I think the people that really got this off the ground, other than the folks who were doing, well, maybe even including the folks who were doing humanities computing, I my sense in knowing some of them and talking with them is that the computing was really a hobby to them. It was something that they had been doing with their Apple IIe from when they were kids, and there was just, they just got used to it and were good at it. Um, so we had to self-train. There was no training in graduate school. There were no digital humanities programs. I couldn't get a master's or a certificate. 
I mean, really, if you could just design a website, you were, you know, that was the tech miracle mm -hmm. of the day. That's how old I am. Um, and so now that there are programs, not computer programs, uh, academic programs that are springing up, part of me still would say to not lose the spirit of the self-training thing. I mean, because I think we'd want our students like you to be able at any time in your life to teach yourself to do whatever you wanted to do without necessarily having to go to school or get an academic credential for it, that once you walked out of our doors, that you were somebody who was prepared to retrain and self-investigate and ask questions and do those things. And Kate and I spent a lot of time training ourselves, like using Gephi, for example, which is a network visualization tool, Omeka, self-taught, right? Um, and the list goes on and on, including how to function in a social media world. There were no social media classes. There was no Facebook or Twitter when I was in school. So I, I really, I appreciate the learning on the job element and would hate to see that lost. Mm -hmm. But if I were a student, um, getting back to your question, like preparing people, I would always make sure that one, whatever you were doing, that it had a purpose, that it had a scholarly purpose, that it wasn't use for the sake of use, which I admit is something that I have fallen prey to more than once, right? Because I want to be out ahead of something, the thing that's really cool, and then you spend time investing in it, and and now it's gone, right? So there was a time in my life that I thought Storify was really important, and now it was really cool, but now it's gone, right? Or maybe there's somebody out there who used to teach classes on um, vines, right? And vine only. So there's a danger there, right? So that there's a scholarly purpose to it. And that really you should be able to walk out and say, what I would hope for my students always was that there was a purpose, a scholarly purpose to whatever they were doing. And that it wasn't so much, okay, how can I find the right, the right technology to do this or I have to there's this technology, I want to try to use it and force something into it, that you could even take something that didn't necessarily work and make it work. You know, that you yeah. could take a technology that's for one thing and make it do something mm -hmm. else, you know? So you should be the master of making the technology work for you. In the same way that musicians always thought that feedback was a problem in the technology until it sounded really good, and then they started using it in their songs. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's a certain mastery and serendipity involved with that that you should be attuned to. Yeah, and I think another important aspect, and, and you did touch on this, but it's not only like where you can be able to teach yourself some of these digital mm -hmm. tools. Digital and public humanities, especially here on campus in the classrooms that I've had, it's more than just can you teach yourself these things, but how do you collaborate with other mm -hmm. students, other faculty members, all this other kind yep. of stuff. Um, and I think that's a huge, huge important thing of digital and public humanities yeah, and is so this field of collaboration. There's something to that. So this goes back to your technology question because it's kind of the same thing which is you know there are in, in teaching collaboration now you're going to have to if you were doing it well you would have to teach they would have to have some kind of multimedia element to it right like you couldn't mm -hmm. just leave that off now that hey everybody's in the room and we're collaborating yeah. you would need to use technology to do that but it wouldn't be dependent it's just the general experience of of collaborating using multiple sources of media no matter what they are and then so going forward you can always make work 
what you need to make work. Yes. You know, it's like, wow, there's, let's say that there's no more, um, that Slack goes out of business, right? Um, <clears throat> it's not like you're going to throw up your hands and say, well, damn, I can't collaborate anymore online because there's no more, <laughs> the sl- I, I don't have a Slack channel. Um, that you'll that you'll find a way to do what you have to do. So it's not the technology itself, the specific technology, it's just the possibility of it. Yes. You know, and so you're being I think what you're what you're being positioned to do is to take advantage of possibility rather than what simply exists. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Okay. I'm going to just ask, I guess, one more question, maybe your opinion. I have no opinions. Because we talked a little bit about about the, well, we talked a lot of it, about the debate of it. And you mm-hmm. um, mentioned how even sometimes people, I, I don't know if offended is the right word, but mm-hmm. they're like against it. They just have yeah. that feeling towards it. So I wrote a blog post mm-hmm. last semester about, what is digital and public humanities and i put my own definition of what it is and part of my definition stated that digital and public humanities has the potential to tear down the long established ivory tower Mm -hmm. of humanities and scholarship yeah do you think that people would disagree with that or i don't know if offended is the right word again there but i just in my head i envision Mm -hmm. like a traditional humanist sitting in their library Mm -hmm. uh, coming across this and just going i think i would i'd split hairs a little bit i wouldn't say that it was an all or nothing disagreement because i think the vision and the ideas that you have actually accommodate both of those things already to me the ivory tower description of higher ed is a myth is a myth i think it's a myth that can be destructive because so there was an article in the washington post yesterday by a um author named max boot um and get the boot he he should get the boot um anyway it's about the problem with history and how historians don't do a good enough job doing this and that. And so the ivory tower metaphor will always come in like you're all you're locked away. Um, but I would remind people that there's a really great book about this um, by a guy named Cal Newport, and it's called Deep Work. It really slaps back against that kind of critique, but also a belief in multitasking and being good at all things. And I think one thing that all of us should have and preserve without apology is the ability to go into a space by yourself and think and reflect, no matter how much time that takes, without caring at all what anybody else thinks about that. And some people might say that's an ivory tower thing, but really um, to get good at something, it takes a ton of work and especially in this field, you know, in the interest that you have, you have to spend a lot of time in your head. Yeah. And you have to spend a lot of time thinking um, and being, you know, you could flip the coin and say, oh, that's self-involved. Not at all. It's, it's exactly what you should be doing as a thoughtful person. And I think someone could say, oh, well, that's just an ivory tower mentality. Nope. That's just a mentality that is a commitment to knowledge. Yeah. Period. Um, so I think both of those things, they're not mutually exclusive at all. They, I think they coexist in a way 
that should be more obvious to people than it is. Yeah. You know, because there are, um, so there is a, a historian that I would connect to digital humanities, Ben Schmidt, who works at Northeastern with a friend of mine, Ryan Cordell, who's a genius in his own right. And Ben has been getting a lot of press for um, data collection and analysis and visualiza- visualization he has done about the state of the humanities in the United States, decline in majors, uh, connection to, but also dispelling the myth that there's somehow an earnings gap and all that really useful stuff. But there's no doubt that Ben sits down and thinks about this and runs through it all the time. He is a deep-rooted intellectual that somebody could say, well, he's in his ivory tower, maybe, you know, but at the end of the day, that knowledge is useful. And the other thing about that, too, is there, and I say this just as to try to, I don't know, to see how you would think about these pressures, is that there is always a lot of pressure to produce knowledge that is immediately useful. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no way to predict when any piece of knowledge is going to be useful. So much of what I've learned in, in academia, in study, is that serendipity plays a huge part of all of this, that... Um, there is no telling when someone's research, especially in the era of climate change, for example, um, you know, there's probably somebody who's written about a lot of outdated irrigation techniques or farming techniques that all of a sudden are going to become pretty darn relevant, yeah. right? Um, so there, there's no predicting it. And I, I, so, yeah, I, I'll, I'll soapbox just for 30 more seconds. I think the ivory tower criticism is destructive okay. when applied to people who it really doesn't apply, which is the majority of higher education institutions, the most of which are community colleges. There's no ivory tower there. I mean, Mm -hmm. these are people teaching like crazy. Are there institutions that this applies to for sure? Yeah, I could name a few. (laughs) I I could name a few that have huge endowments and that's maybe that's just me being jealous. Mm -hmm. So they coexist in my mind. Don't be afraid of the ivory tower. If you have a chance to go in it and collect your thoughts and yeah. study something that you really care about and go mentally and intellectually further than you ever thought you could because of it, take advantage of it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I should do like You don't pot. have to say okay. Like I'm not giving you an order or anything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm busy tonight. This is what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> no, I should write a part two to that blog post mm-hmm. that talks a little bit about that. Um, what we just discussed, because that totally changed mm-hmm. my perspective on it. But I think, but you are pointing out a real argument that that is something that does exist rhetorically as a criticism, mm-hmm. as an argument. Well, and I think one of my favorite parts, I have a lot of favorite parts mm-hmm. of this major, but it is taking the knowledge that we learn here at the university level and it's allowing it to be be brought to the public who may at sometimes not have access to the mm-hmm. readings that I have or the, yeah. the the access to the knowledge that I have. Um, and I, I guess it's just, I read these things and I'm like, oh my gosh, everyone should know this. Mm-hmm. Everyone needs to know yep. this. It'll just make us all better human beings. Yeah. And knowledge helps people. Yeah. And that's, that's yeah. Knowledge helps people. <laughs> right? Hashtag knowledge. It really does. And um, there, there is always, so I think, I agree with that because as a creative writer, I write poetry. So let's just say that my general reading audience is very small, right? But when I was publishing, and it's been a while since I've really been able to write at all, but every now and then you would have, I would have somebody contact me and say how much something I had written meant to them. 
or whatever, just one person. And that's enough. Like that is the full sum of all the connection that I need in the world, Mm -hmm. you know? So let's say that one of your parents was keeping a diary, you know, or kept a scrapbook and you never knew about it. And after they were gone, that became yours and you were the sole audience for that. That, that is no different than an academic treatise in some ways. It just is a smaller audience, but that audience is no less valuable. Yeah. You know? I mean, there are things that reaching a larger audience are really helpful, like why you should vaccinate and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like we, w- yep. we want to broaden the audience for that. Um, but there is, um, I, I think what the ivory tower metaphor gets at is basically a real discrimination in some levels against people who are dedicated to things that they find valuable that other people do not. Th- that is much more about social and economics and class dynamics yeah. than it is any real criticism, I would say. Yeah. Thank you. No, thank you. I appreciate it. This, these are always the best parts of my day at all times. I've learned a lot. This is your first podcast, This right? is my first You did podcast. great. Let's just say it. <laughs> Round of applause out there to all the listeners. Humanities Plus was produced by Kate Farley and edited by our Phoenix Studios intern Preston Fisher. Special thanks to Eric Chambers for the wonderful and jazzy music. For more great content like the episode you just heard, check out our Phoenix Studio website at www.uwgb.edu slash podcast. And don't forget to tune in next time for our next show on digital and public herstory.